Hi, I'm Mark Lynch of the George Washington University and the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMAPS Conversations, our series of regular chats with leading scholars in the field about their research, current events, or whatever else is on their mind. With me today is Sean Yom, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Temple University and the author of a new book, From Resilience to Revolution, How Foreign Interventions Destabilize the Middle East, uh, just published with Columbia University Press. Sean, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Mark. So um, why, don't you, why don't we start just by talking about your book? Uh, it's hot off the presses, so tell us a little bit about it. Uh, well, this book is the expanded and final version of uh, a dissertation I started uh, about 10 years ago, actually, in graduate school. And uh, it's been in gestation for a very long time. And as my first book, I'm uh, particularly excited to deliver my findings about the importance of foreign aid and geopolitical interference in uh, the stability of the Middle East, looking at a few case studies that are near and dear to my heart, which in the book are uh, Iran, Jordan, and Kuwait. And the book was based upon uh, a lot of research, um, field work in uh, Kuwait and Jordan, and, and actually in several of the Arab countries that didn't make the final cut into the book, um, based upon uh, research into diplomatic documents, um, Arabic language materials, historical monographs, uh, leadership biographies, everything I could get my hands on in order to ascertain what kinds of decisions that the leaders of these countries were making in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s when these states were quite new and they had to design new economic and political institutions uh, for their reign. And some of them uh, designed institutions which became, which turned out to be far more stable than others. Uh, and this book is an examination of why these leaders made such different decisions, resulting in very different outcomes, Iran being the canonical case of a revolution, Kuwait being, in my view, an exemplary case of long-term stability, and Jordan being what I consider to be a middle-range case of a regime that's long-lived, but isn't necessarily as stable as it would like to be, because it always faces, I think, the razor's edge in terms of internal opposition, a question that's never been able to resolve uh, for the variety of its, for, for the majority of its history. So you really put a lot of emphasis on these early institutional arrangements, uh, not just uh, the role of foreign, foreign aid right now, but the way that foreign aid uh, went into the early regime building back in the founding days of the state. So why, why do you think that history matters so much? Yeah, that, that's that's another great question. Um, in my view, uh, the ways that, especially in the post-colonial world, uh, the ways that states form and develop and the institutions in the economy and political uh, realm that distinguish these states over time, they tend to persist. Uh, they tend to reconfigure or reemerge or remake themselves only in the presence of a major crisis like a revolution or most recently the Arab Spring. So most of the time what happened before just continues on. And uh, with some modification to the extent that if a ruler of a country in the 1950s says, for instance, I want to create an economy which is systematically biased against, say, agriculture and is... Uh, and is fostered towards rapid industrialization, which will benefit a very narrow segment of the urban middle class and the business elites, then those policies tend to have or tend to dominate 
economic planning, as well as the functioning of economic markets, far longer than the ruler plans. They can be incredibly difficult to reverse uh, as these policies uh, uh, kick into effect and gain winners and gain stakeholders. And that's ultimately the reason why I emphasize these early decisions made really right after uh, World War II, uh, because these decisions were obviously not made with the understanding that they would be, they would dictate the fates of these states, but they ultimately did. Uh, and that's why I find looking at early parts of history so interesting because of these patterns of path dependence and historical reproduction that tend to distinguish the ways that political development and economic development transpire um, in, the, uh, in, in much of the developing world. So why, why the international role? Why, why do you think that that's so central as opposed to kind of the local politics in those early founding periods? So I see uh, the international system, and in particular uh, the geopolitical realm, as especially important uh, because, in my view, it's either misused or completely ignored in a lot of studies of Middle East state building and post-colonial politics. Uh, there's a tendency, for instance, on part of some scholars to look at, say, the U.S. giving foreign aid or Britain supporting a certain regime or France meddling in some of its North African territories as the single most important determinant uh, of everything that happens after colonialism to the extent that Everything bad that happens after the 1950s, whether it's a revolution or poverty or repression or unsavory dictatorship or whatnot, all gets blamed singularly on the external. And on the other hand, the overcorrective, which is what many Middle East intellectuals tend to do uh, in response to that, is to ignore the international and look purely upon domestic institutions and policies and ask themselves, why is it ha have these states been unable to stumble across, for instance, the formula for sustainable development or formula for democratic transition? And what I try to do in my book is to mix the two. What I want to show is that at the end of the day, when these states stop being colonies and protectorates, the decisions made locally have the most primacy, right? You don't have a white revolution in Iran without the Shah ordering the right rev uh, revolution. You don't have redistribution of oil wealth in Kuwait without the emirs of Kuwait actively consenting to that redistribution. But what I find, though, is that how these leaders come to that domestic process of figuring out which local policies seem most logical and seem most effective cannot be explained unless you look at their interaction with the outside realm, and in particular with great powers. And so I try to balance the two, local politics and geopolitics, in a way that lets me uh, both not deny the importance of either, but also come up with an account that tells us intuitively what I think a lot of us know, that especially in the Cold War era, geopolitics mattered immensely in the Middle East in structuring the decisions that states made. But at the end of the day, those decisions were the property of these states and these states alone. And tracing the effects of those policies is what actually dominates most of the case studies in my book. I focus on early geopolitical interference in the sense of the U.S. say intervening to support the Shah of Iran or intervening to support King Hussein and Jordan are really only in the only in, in the earlier parts um, of, uh, of the book. And the latter is just tracing step by step how all of these things early on shape policies with lasting ramifications for the next 20, 30, 40 or 50 years. So you don't just make the uh, the easy argument that uh, that foreign aid or foreign intervention is bad or destabilizing. You're actually making a different kind of argument, which is that sometimes the foreign aid 
uh, and, and the foreign intervention pushed leaders in the direction of creating states that were resilient, and in other cases, they didn't. But why is that? You know, what, what kinds of conditions made it more likely that uh, those leaders would make good decisions and create states that were likely to be more resilient and stable? Right. So uh, it, when I compare the trajectories of states like Iran, Jordan, and Kuwait, uh, one, of the, w one of the core findings that I came across was uh, that it wasn't simply that, say, international support in the form of, say, a diplomatic embrace that bolstered the confidence of a regime leader to crack down, or economic aid that in some cases literally replaced domestic revenues to help the government pay for salaries, or military support in the sense of setting up an intelligence apparatus or training a new generation of army officers. Uh, what I find is that the most important variable or the most important dimension of this early foreign support is not the fact that countries had them, but when this foreign support came into effect online in these countries. What I find is that when foreign aid and military assistance and other forms of international uh, propping up saturate countries and saturate leaders at the precise moment that A, they are young, B, they are weak, and C, they are facing intense social opposition, typically from a coalition of left-wing and nationalist activists, then that foreign support has the most destructive effects because that foreign support incentivizes those leaders to turn away from bargaining with society and instead go the easy way out, which is preserve power through crackdowns and repression. Now, a ruler, as in the Kuwaiti case, that doesn't have access to all that aid, uh, uh, in the, uh, all that aid or military assistance early on, is forced to bargain with his or her rivals. They're forced to, for instance, are inclusive, which shy away from repression, and which emphasize bargaining and compromise over the kind of top-down authoritarianism we see in more uh, uh, coercive, uh, more closed cases like Iran. So in the Kuwaiti case, even later on, when we see the West massively helping Kuwait in various ways, even including liberation in 1990, what I find is that that's okay because the lineaments of the Kuwaiti state were built decades earlier when the Sabah regime had no access to outside help. It had to look inwards. It had to neutralize opposition, not through the gun, but through negotiations. And that's what makes it uh, so ultimately durable. By contrast, in the Iranian case, uh, it really didn't matter, despite uh, the debates, particularly among neoconservatives, of whether or not Carter lost Iran in 78 or 79. What I find is that because the kinds of repressive tactics and narrow industrializing policies which alienated enormous segments of the Iranian population, such as the ulama, or the, uh, the religious scholars, uh, much of the peasantry, much of the traditional uh, merchant class, the bazaars and the cities, because those policies were set in effect after the 1950s, when Iran was being saturated with U.S. support and it didn't really care about making enemies domestically, when the Shah comes with the fact, comes face to face with the fact that in 1978, probably 15 to 20 percent of the Iranian population at some point is active on the street mobilizing against them, there's really, it doesn't matter at that point what the U.S. does. I mean, short of militarily occupying Iran, it doesn't really matter if the U.S. gives Iran any more support or not. The most destructive factor is that it did so 40, uh, 30 years earlier, and that's what set Iran onto that crash course with revolution. But so when exactly does, does 
how do you know when path dependence begins and ends? In other words, why, why are decisions made in the 1940s and 50s more important than things that happened in the 18th century or in the 1970s or 80s? How, how do you know when that shaping moment really is? Right. So that's, that's a great question that scholars like, scholars like myself who deal with, uh, who try to compare and deal with the nuances of history often have to grapple with. And uh, what we tend to do in our historical work is look for critical junctures, moments of rupture where new people come to the surface, new actors such as an urban middle class, or in the case of these countries, new leaders who bring a whole new set of elites into office. And what they try to do is at the end of a major historical era, in this case, occupation or imperialism or, colon or, or, or colonial occupation, they're set with a host, they're beset with a host of new decisions and choices about what kinds of institutions to build because they naturally are facing a new era. And that's where I find that for these countries, modern history truly begins. Uh, now, obviously, the kinds of countries and populations and societies and cultures that emerge in these countries all reflect centuries and centuries of earlier developments. But in the realm of regime building, and political development, what I find is that starting from about the 40s through the 50s, all these countries, and in fact, most of the countries in the Middle East had incredibly important decisions to make because it was as if the political slate were wiped clean. There were new forms of opposition, imperial powers were leaving, they all of a sudden were told they were sovereign states in the international system, and they had to find some way to legitimize and consolidate their political order. And they all faced that seminal choice at roughly the same time. So could the Arab Spring have been such a rupture? Uh, could that have been the kind of uh, blank slate that you're talking about? Or were the institutional choices already made and already so congealed that uh, the moment was, has been lost? So I'm, I'm torn about this. On the one hand, we see evidence that despite the Arab Spring's revolutionary fervor, that so many countries in the region, particularly the monarchies, which is actually the top topic of my second book project, uh, don't seem to be changing on the surface. Um, but on the other hand, those of us who track the Arab Spring very carefully, including in monarchies like Morocco and Jordan, cannot deny that the kinds of images and symbols which were bandied about on the street had a shattering effect. There was an understanding among most of the youth population, all of whom will become, I think, politically active over the next generation, that the old way wasn't working and that this was indeed uh, a new bank, blank slate. I think that the Arab Spring ultimately, for most of the countries of the Middle East, uh, I think there are some exceptions like Algeria and Oman um, and maybe Lebanon, which has its own dynamic. Uh, force political leaders to make a whole new set of political decisions about what kind of political order they wanted to stabilize um, in the 21st century. So I think that for most of these countries, it was a blank slate, um, or it did create a kind of blank slate effect. Some rulers or some regimes reacted by trying to go back to the old ways. I think Egypt is canonical in that regard. But even among regimes that don't seem to have changed superficially, like Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Morocco, you find political elites in these countries uh, who have the reins of power having to make very nuanced choices about how they think their families are going to survive in office over the next century or even just generation. And in that sense, they're confronting a whole new era, a, a whole new set of pressures and constraints that they didn't have to face before. Would a country like Tunisia 
by the logic of your book, uh, be better off not receiving international assistance as it attempts to reconstitute itself? Would that simply distort and allow it to avoid the kinds of choices that you think should be made? So I, I think that... Uh, you know, th th there's a third option, which is that if a government, uh, if if a new uh, legitimizing but still shaky democratic government like that in Tunisia receives international aid, uh, it should be done with some kind of conditionality. And and the reason why I think in the Middle East we tend not to think of, about conditionality is that it just doesn't exist. When the U.S. gives Israel or Jordan or Morocco or Egypt. Um, money or arms, it very seldom puts conditions on them like it does with the rest of the world. So we tend to think in the region, so what's better, aid or no aid? Um, there is a third way, which is that you attach conditions to support given such that if a country does receive support, it's told that that's a $500 million aid payment or upgrading their military equipment is done with the understanding that there's no slide back to authoritarian rule, that losers of elections still must be incorporated as part of the political system as the Constitution allows, that the winners of an election cannot uh, conduct any extra constitutional measures to repress the, loser of the losers of the elections, even if they are diametrically opposed, such as the leftist secularist wing of Tunisian politics, uh, and the and and the religious party, uh, the Islamist movement of Tunisia and Nafta. Um, if that support is given with the understanding that these two sites still have to talk to one another, then I think that would be absolutely fine. Uh, the, the 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 tragic thing about Middle East history is that conditionality is almost absent in the ways that the international system, in particular the great powers, have always shaped have always supported these regimes. And as a result, these regimes, the autocratic ones, are used to thinking or are used to the habit of spending that money and conducting their policies without any accountability to their donors. All right, great. Well, thanks. You've been listening to uh, Sean Yom, author of uh, From Resilience to Revolution, new book from Columbia University Press. And uh, you've been listening to the Poem Maps Conversation podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.